of our series in the book of Revelation as we make our way through uh, the Scriptures. Lord willing, maybe in my whole lifetime, my whole ministry, I'll be able to make it through all the Bible and preaching, but we'll see. But we're here in Revelation chapter 19. And um, welcome if you are visiting with us. We're glad you're here. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. And I get to bring um, most Sundays teaching from God's Word. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19. We'll be in verses uh, 11 to 21. While you're turning there, let me ask you, have you ever thought how history might have been different if people could get a glimpse of the future? How history might have been different if people could get a glimpse of what was coming, of of the future, of, of the impact of their decisions and their actions? What might have happened if Hitler's generals had known that they would lose the war, that five million German people would die, and, and that they would cause the deaths of 70 million people. What might have happened if the early communist leadership in, this, in Russia had foreseen that communism would cost the death of 100 million people and eventually just collapse simply under its own weight and bankruptcy? What might have happened if the early settlers in our country and the founding fathers had been able to really see the impact of slavery, the 15 million lives uh, taken, and the blight that it would be on our country for centuries. What might have happened if they had been able to glimpse the future and had seen those things ahead of time? What might have happened if the Japanese Empire had seen that they would lose the war at the cost of 12.5 million people? How might history have been different if people could have just caught a glimpse of what was going to happen? What choices would have been made differently? What actions would have been taken differently? What lives would have been affected differently? What evils would have been avoided? What good could have been done if we could simply have have glimpsed the future? What a difference it, it might have made. Well, today, we are offered in God's Word a glimpse of the future. And it is intended, I believe, by God to indeed change history. To change our lives. And through us to change other lives. We will look in Scripture and be able to look through time and see the final victory of good over evil. To see the final triumph of Jesus over all those who have rebelled against His goodness and His glory and His justice. And this picture is indeed meant to change history. It's meant to minimize casualties. It's meant to maximize those who find refuge in Jesus. It's meant to embolden those who are followers of Jesus to live for that final victory. And particularly when you feel at times that you're on the losing side. That's the intention here in Revelation chapter 19. It teaches us, we'll see, that Jesus wins and we can line ourselves up now with that eventuality, that, that history that will take place, that future that is sure, that Jesus wins. So let's pray and then we'll read God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We may not be able to see the future uh, in these other circumstances, but through Your Word, we get to see the future. And Lord, You are good to give us a glimpse of the future here because You want us to be ready. You want us to live for that eventuality. You want our actions and our decisions and our lives and our perspectives to be affected by glimpsing the future. 
in so many ways. And so I pray by the power of Your Holy Spirit, Lord, as I seek to teach and proclaim Your Word, would You help us to not only glimpse the future, but to change in our lives as a result of seeing what surely will happen. Help us, Lord. We need help with that. We can't do it on our own. So come, Spirit of God, and help us in every way and be glorified because You're good and gracious and worthy. So we look forward to what You'll do as You speak through Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can follow along with me. I'm in chapter 19, verses 11 to the end of the chapter. As the storyline continues through Revelation, we have this scene here. Apostle John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 21. This section of Scripture is given to us that we might have a glimpse of the future that Jesus wins, that Jesus conquers His enemies, that He conquers all His enemies. He conquers His enemies easily. He conquers them finally. And He is worthy to conquer. Jesus wins. Jesus conquers all. And the implication here is to find your refuge in Jesus now. Find your refuge in Jesus and serve Him now because He will win in the end. That's, that's what I believe this section of Scripture teaches us. That's what I believe it's meant for. So let's dig into those three, three subtopics. Jesus is worthy to conquer. Jesus will conquer easily. He will conquer finally. So it starts in this section as it does actually throughout Revelation. This is the start of a new section. Um, we've been making our way through Revelation. And we've seen that there are these seven vision cycles, these seven things, these cycles, these collection of visions actually, 
that John has that show uh, what has, was soon going to take place and what would eventually take place. Uh, and so it cycles through and it, it's overlapping. And so we're now in uh, just about the last cycle. And this is the fourth part of the cycle. And, and we have clues of, of these cycles fitting together because each little incident in the particular cycle starts with things like, then I saw, then I heard. So we see in chapter 1911, it says, then I saw. What does he see? He sees heaven opened. He sees the, the heaven reality where, where God dwells, the spiritual reality, uh, the ultimate reality actually, uh, of what's going on. And in this ultimate reality, there's revelation from God of a white horse. It's a, a white horse. It's a mighty horse. It's a war horse is the, is the idea. And there's one sitting on this horse. There's actually an army with him as well with white horses as well. And that army is all arrayed and white. And in, in Revelation, right, white is a symbol of purity and goodness. And so we have this army. We have this army of white horses and people clothed in white. And we have at the head of the army the captain of this mighty army, one who is called Faithful and True. Now we know from what we read about the description, what we see in the rest of Revelation and in Scripture, that it is Jesus who's on this horse. He is the one who's faithful and true. That's used earlier in Revelation, in I think chapter 1 and chapter 3, he is called the faithful and the true one. That's a theme in Revelation. Revelation was written originally to churches that were amidst persecution. They were being persecuted by the mainstream culture in a very severe way, found it very difficult to be Christians because it meant losing, losing family, losing jobs, and losing their lives perhaps as well. And so there was compromise going on, and so the book of Revelation was written to them to encourage them, to spur them on to be faithful and true. And certainly it applies to them, it applies to us, because these truths we're learning about apply for the whole church age, will ultimately be fulfilled at the very end. And so Jesus is the ultimate faithful and true one. He is faithful. He does not deviate from trusting in His Father and to walking with His God and following through the things He's called to do. And He was faithful to the point of death on the cross. The ultimate, in a sense, persecution you might have, the ultimate suffering you could ever face, the ultimate cost to be paid for following God was paid by Christ. He went to the cross. He knew what was coming. In that Garden of Gethsemane, he, he prayed and he sweat drops of blood as he anticipated the cost, what he would face. Yet, by grace and as God in the flesh, he was faithful to the end. And on that cross, he, he bore the holy justice of God for the sake of, of all those who would run to him for refuge. He is the faithful and true One. He's truth incarnate. And so He's on this horse. He's faithful and true. He leads us. And in Him we overcome. That's important to understand in, in Revelation. It's not saying pick yourselves up by the bootstraps and be just like Jesus. No, you'll never be like Jesus. But follow Jesus. Trust Jesus. Walk with Him and you will find yourself in Him overcoming. You will find yourself, to your surprise, being faithful and true as well by His grace. So He is this faithful and true One who has overcome the world for our sake. And as we cling to Him and follow Him, we can walk in faithfulness and truth as well. It says that in righteousness, He judges and makes war. So He's on this war horse. He's leading this army. He's bringing this final judgment. And it's in righteousness. This is warfare unlike we've ever known. As, as just as any particular war might be, 
Um, there's always a taint of corruption in it, but not this one. This is righteousness. He is riding forth in righteousness and goodness, standing for what is good and right and just. And He's coming to vanquish all evil and eradicate it finally and fully from the earth. So He, he judges in righteousness. He makes war in righteousness. It's His prerogative actually. Because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has gone through the very worst this world can offer. He's bore borne our sins on the cross. He's overcome in His resurrection. He has a right to rule and reign. He does rule and reign. And He has a right to judge all evil. And vanquish evil. And that's what He's doing here. It's not for greed or malice, but for goodness and justice and final peace. He Himself deserves to conquer and bring victory. He alone. It describes Him here as, as eyes having eyes like a flame of fire. He has eyes that as they look at you would burn a hole in you as we say. He can see you and He can see all as Toby read from John. He can see all the things that you've done. He knows everything about everybody. These are eyes of one who is good and holy and righteous and is judge. And so His eyes are a flame of fire piercing through all the things that you might put up to hide who you are or perceptions you might put forth to protect your image. He sees through it all. He sees through all systems. He sees through all history. He sees through all things. He, he sees with this piercing eye what is true. And He stands as judge in that. The righteous judge. On His head are many royal crowns. He is the ultimate King. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. He wears many crowns. He, he is the King over all kings. He's the ultimate ruler over all governments. He has a prerogative to rule and to reign. It describes Him as having a name known by none but Himself. and That's a little bit unusual maybe for us to what's going on there. Uh, just first think in Scripture, God reveals Himself by telling us His name. Now, God uh, doesn't have a name like you and I have a name. You know, we, we go by an identity. God is not tied to any particular identity. His name is a revelation of Himself. So His names always describe Himself. Uh, so, so when He says, my, my name is Yahweh, as we say, or I am, it's not like He was named when He was a little kid, Yahweh. No, it, He's revealing who He is. He is the I am. He's the eternal existent one. He's the ultimate reality. He is the I am. Everything else is because I am. So He reveals His character. And so throughout Scripture, He is called by many names and they all are things that describe who He is, what He's like. And so when it talks about Jesus having a name that no one knows, it's the same thing. It's describing who He is. And, and I think if we back up into the context, we recognize what's happening here is Jesus is fulfilling everything that has been predicted and planned and in that fulfillment, He's revealing the fullness of who God is in His mercy, in His grace, in His holiness, in His justice, in His wrath, in His glory. And so there's a name coming. There's a revelation of the fullness of His glory that will only come when Jesus returns and reveals everything that He has planned. I believe that's what He means by having a name that no one knows yet. But they will know as He reveals Himself. He has, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, it says. I believe this is the blood of His enemies, not the blood that He shed. Before He justly exacts the blood of His enemies, He's 
unjustly poured out His own blood. Christ shed His blood, His holy blood, His blood representing His life and His goodness, His glory. He poured out that blood willingly in love for humanity. In love for you and for me. He poured out His blood. He bore on the cross the the justice that we deserve to pay. He, He spilled the blood we deserve to spill before a holy and good God for the sins and rebellion of our lives. Not a common topic, not a happy topic in our culture, but but we need to wrestle with that reality. If that's a new idea, we need to wrestle with that reality that there is right and wrong. Who gets to determine that standard? Who gets to say what's right and wrong ultimately? Uh, And what is that standard? Well, I, I believe God gets to say it and His standard is this. It's actually an excellent standard. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Him with everything you are. Love Him with your whole life. Love Him with every thought, every affection, every intention, every plan. Why? Because He's that good. He's that good to you. Everything you have, everything you are comes from Him. From His goodness. He is kind to you. He, he provides your needs. He blesses you with so many things. All those things don't happen because you were successful and wise or because of this or that. They ultimately come from God. Every good gift is from Him. And in His love, He pours out all these things that you might know Him and walk with Him and love Him that much. It's just. It's a good command. And then with it, which means it goes right hand in hand, it's not, it ultimately can't be separated, is love your neighbor as yourself. Because to love God means you must love your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to love God. They're made in the image of God. The, the, the anthropology of the Bible is that mankind is made in the image of God. We're not a higher, mere higher form of an animal. We are made in the image of God. So to love people is to love God. That, that's His standard. It's simple. It's good. It's right. And yet, if we're honest, we fail willfully again and again and again. And justice demands a response. Justice demands a payment. Uh, we understand that. We live with those standards. And, and the, the, the payment of, from God is to be put away, to be punished, put away from His holy and good presence forever. And yet Jesus sheds His blood on the cross, pays for our sins sheds His blood for us, that in Him, that penalty might be paid through simple faith. It's an amazing truth. The good news is that good. It's it's an offer to you for full forgiveness and reconciliation to God simply by believing that Jesus indeed did that. He did indeed shed His blood for you to pay for your sins. He is indeed God in the flesh. That's simply what it is. And simply when you believe that and you turn away, you say, I don't want to be in rebellion anymore. I want to change. I can't change on my own, so I look to you, Jesus. Thank you for your blood shed for me. I want to follow you. It's that simple. Simply through faith, you are counted and forgiven. You're counted righteous, forgiven of your sins in Jesus. So before this scene is here in Revelation, He's already poured out His blood for humanity, for you, that you might even right now, through faith, find a refuge in Him. But Revelation is a glimpse of the future, right? This is what's coming. And there will be a day when His robe is dipped in the blood of His enemies. Those who have refused to run to Him for refuge when they had all the time in the world to do it. There will be a time when it's too late. And He doesn't come as Savior at this moment. He comes as final judge. And it's too late. You're given a glimpse of the future through this section of Scripture today that it might not be too late for you. You might find refuge and live for that ultimate victory in Jesus.
So his robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies at this point. That's the context here. It's not the blood shed on the cross, but the blood of his, his final victory and his punishment of the enemies of God. Um, again, now remember, this, there's aspects in this vision that are symbolic and there are aspects that are real and it takes a little bit of thinking through. Uh, this is about His final judgment and on rebellious humanity. And so it's pictured this way and, 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 and it's, it's a horrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God standing on your own. That's what's going on here. There's vengeance brought, righteous vengeance brought on the enemies of God. He is also called the living the Word of God. He is the One, the, the Word incarnate, truth incarnate. He is the the will of God incarnate. He's the fulfiller of all righteousness. He's come as Savior. He's going to come as Judge to execute God's plan. He is the Word of God. He is the implementer, the, the one who comes with the authoritative Word to carry out God's plans. So this picture of Jesus here, which is a true picture, a glimpse of the future, must be connected to the picture of Jesus shedding His blood on the cross. He is both Savior and Judge. They go together. Actually, there are sections in this part of Revelation that are right from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a really important psalm to understand. This was written a long time before Jesus was born as a man. Written by David. uh, Written about Jesus ultimately. And it teaches us about who He is. And and we we need to to know Psalm 2. So we have it to, to put up on the screen. I just want to read through it. And I I want you to make connections with what we've read in Revelation 19. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your heritage and the ends of the earth Your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's the context to Revelation 19. And that's the truth that we need to to hear. We need to understand who God is. We need to understand what Jesus is like. We need to understand what our Heavenly Father is like because He's behind all these things as His Son, God the Son, carries these things out. You know, we like to see God kind of as this pushover of sorts. We have a picture of God. He's kind of like a gracious, indulgent grandparent. And I can say this, by the way, I'm a grandparent. He's a gracious, indulgent grandparent. Nothing against grandparents. Um, but we see him as this gracious, indulgent grandparent who kind of like winks an eye, 
You know, he winks an eye at us as, at our mischief, and it's ah, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Come on, come on for a hug. Here's some candy. Uh, we we see the father that way, that as a, as kind of a gracious, maybe you almost senile pushover, but he's not. Now, we can never exaggerate his graciousness. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says, "Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more." Grace is so amazingly gracious. We can never exaggerate. So I'm not saying that that's not true. He's gracious, but he's holy. And He's good. And He hates evil. He sees all. He knows all. He hates all evil with a pure and perfect and constant hatred. He does not compromise in hating evil. And He will deal with all evil. He will not wink an eye at any evil. He brings justice to all evil. All failure to follow His righteous and good commands. He will deal with it all. And it's dealt with either by justice poured out on God the Son and His bloodshed, or justice put out on the one who refused to run to Jesus for refuge and they receive His holy wrath. Every single act, every single injustice will be dealt with fully by a God who sees all and is in control and and will do the things we're reading about. Now, it's troubling to hear these things because we're just kind of tuned in our culture to not like this. We like the grandfather God vision. We like the God who just loves us. Of course He loves us. And, and as long as I'm not all that bad, He's going to accept me. And we create our own standards. It's a, a God of our own making. It's not the God of the Bible. And it's a dangerous position, but it is what we come out of. It's hard. And I would just suggest, I mean, first to wrestle and think through these things. And, and, and we have all the time in the world to help you think through these things. And, and by the way, that's for all of us. Whether you're on a journey just kind of wondering about Christianity or if you've been a Christian a long time, you still are affected by these things and you need to wrestle with these truths. I do. And I would just suggest that you not waste your time arguing that you're not guilty. It's just street smarts. Just, you know, this is God. And He says you're guilty. So, I'd like to argue that I'm not, but wouldn't it just be smart to say, okay, you're right. You're in charge. And, and just admit your fault. Because He gives us a glimpse of the future that now we might find refuge. Because this is future. This is final judgment. This is what's coming. But now we have Christ on the cross shed His blood for us. Full forgiveness. Full atonement. So why not come to Him? Why not put your faith there? Why not live in Him? Why not depend on One who loves us and who offers us such amazing amnesty? Such amazing atonement for our sins? God is patient, but... He's not a procrastinator. He will eventually deal with everything. He will eventually act, but we live in this time when when His kindness, His goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. He's patient that we might turn and trust Him and that we might live for what ultimately counts. And you see throughout Scripture Him acting this way. He he is amazingly patient. He pleads. He waits. He brings His prophets. He gives chances again and again, but then finally and swiftly He brings judgment. He does that again and again. All the stories. Just think, I mean, think about Pharaoh. It was multiple chances he had from Moses asking him to let the people go. He starts out with a minor, actually an amazing miracle, but it's meant to just say, Pharaoh, you know, we're coming, we have authority here. And Pharaoh just hardens his heart again and again and again and again. He has to go through ten plagues. His country is devastated. And finally, he lets the people go. So God does act. And, and there's story after story in the Bible. This is true. 
God is patient, but He calls us to respond and He will act. And here we have a glimpse of the future that we might live accordingly. So stop defending yourself. Stop running and run to Jesus. And find in Him mercy and forgiveness and power and new life. Don't make the mistake of refusing mercy and finding yourself irrevocably judged and lost. Do not presume on the kindness of God. It'll be worth it. Because, the other side of this, this is also meant for those who have run. To realize He will win. And He will reward. And everything that you've done as you've sought to follow Him will be rewarded. And He will use you in this life to touch other people's lives as well. To, to model His goodness and glory. To spread His love and truth. He will use you now, then He rewards you then. This, this final victory is vanquishing the, the enemy, but also inviting those who have trusted in Christ and clung to Him as He's clung onto us to this wedding supper, this alternative supper. Not a supper of vultures, but a supper in the presence of God in joy and eternal bliss in a new creation. And so, trusting Him and living for Him now makes complete sense because He wins. Second point. And probably more quickly. Jesus will easily conquer. He easily conquers here. There's a, a sword that comes out of His mouth. This sword of the Word of God. He has a rod of iron. Uh, this is a, like a shepherd's rod, but this is one of iron to smash His enemies. It's a powerful weapon. And He has with Him the armies of heaven, by the way. There's a huge army and they're riding white horses as well and they're all clothed in white. And commentators discuss who this army is and I think that this army is the armies of heaven which is comprised of the holy angels and all of His people. All of His people. All the saints who have trusted in Christ up to this point in time. Because elsewhere in Scripture we have, a, have depictions of this scene. And again, we have to understand Revelation is a prophetic, symbolic thing. So there's things that are meant that represent things. Things that are actual. And we have to kind of wade through that. Um, so it's not necessarily a one-for-one, one, but it's, it, it connects with other Scriptures, of course, because there's one author behind Scripture, God Himself. And elsewhere in Scripture, we see these armies being assembled. So uh, quickly, just reading through some other verses. Matthew 24, it, Jesus says, speaking about the same time period, He says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes on the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, that's Christ coming down. We're going out to meet Him as, a, as the word that's used for that is the same word used for how they would meet dignitaries coming into town. They would go out of the town and meet them and then come back in the town with them. So you're not going up into the sky to float away. You're going with Jesus to come down to the earth to bring the fullness of the kingdom. 2 Thessalonians 1 as well speaks of this. It says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness 
and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So this is to the church in Thessalonica. There, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Very similar, isn't it, to Revelation? Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among, among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Then 1 Corinthians 15, parallel as well. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, speaking of the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When? At his coming. There's the resurrection. All right? Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's parallels. Revelation 19. All these verses parallel what's going on. This is Jesus coming back with these mighty angels and His people are being resurrected. Those who have died have been in heaven waiting for this moment. Have resurrected bodies are raised to Him. Those who are alive are caught up with Him. It's the resurrection of the just with the Lord. They come with the armies. They come down to earth and they're part of this great army. That's what I believe is going on here. And it's interesting to note in Revelation 19 that this is, there's no mention of what goes on in the battle. There's nothing like, you know, well, then this guy, you know, Jim Smith, he kind of took out his holy sword and he fought this guy, this giant. There's nothing like that. This battle is over in an instant. In their rebellion and in their delusion, and all rebellion is delusion, by the way, in, in their rebellion and delusion, they think somehow the armies of the earth that, that they can somehow fight against Jesus and his army. And this is God. In the flesh. This is the one who spoke and the whole universe was formed from nothing. At a word. He just spoke. Let there be light. Let it be. Boom! The whole universe and all its vastness and glory created. This is the one who can speak and uncreate the universe if he would like to. This is one just with a word can, can vanquish all. And so, this battle is, is nothing to him. Think of all those... Uh, you know, weapons you see, the super weapons you see like in movies and stuff. And I was talking to my son and I said, what, you know, what would be kind of like the ultimate power weapon among the superheroes? And, and uh, we were talking and we thought, maybe Thor's hammer, if you know the, the Thor in the Marvel series, right? He's got this, this hammer and he kind of, he holds it up when he's like really gets powerful and the lightning hits it, right? And the lightning comes out of his eyes and then he goes, oh, boom, and he hits the ground and there's a big wave and everyone gets knocked down, right? That's pretty cool, uh, pretty powerful. Um, you know, there, there's all other Iron Man suit, Captain America's shield, all these, all these different things. And then there's real weapons too, I mean, that are powerful we can talk about. And, um, you know, the Abrams tank, 70 tons and goes 70 kilometers per hour shooting, nuclear powered aircraft carriers, strategic bombers, nuclear weapons, all these things, massive weapons. Not, none of these are anything compared to Jesus. And these armies are arrayed against him, and he conquers them with a word. Boom! It's over. It's all over in an instant. He wins. He wins. 
And so this picture, this glimpse of the future and the decisiveness of this battle is meant for us that we might hang on to Him. When we might feel like we're on the losing side, we might feel at point that we are somehow the minority. That can change in an instant, by the way. God is doing great things throughout the earth and bringing people to faith in Christ, transforming even cultures. He can turn things around in an instant. This here in Scripture is to remind us that He wins in the end, ultimately. So hang on and keep on being faithful. Do not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Hang on when it seems that truth loses to lies. Hang on when injustice seems to win over justice. Hang on and continue to do good when evil seems to be all around you. Jesus wins in the end. He will conquer in an instant with a mere word from His mouth. He will win and there will be eternal rewards for a countless number of people who have fled to Him for refuge. He wins easily and He conquers finally. In this storyline, the, the beast is captured along with the false prophet. We've encountered them earlier. Chapters 14 and previously. Um, they, are, they are conquered now. Remember that these represent uh, fallen humanity. The first beast is the dragon, which represents the devil. The first beast represents false kingdoms, false government. Government exalting itself over God. Government trying to take the place, usurping uh, Jesus' rightful government. And then there's the, the other beast, the second beast, which represents false religion. Partnering with false government, it always happens whenever there's a government that seeks to run all of life, there's always a, a worldview or religion that comes in to support that. That's what these beasts represent. And so they are finally and fully dealt with. These human agencies that have aligned themselves as allies of the devil himself are judged here, and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. It's a, it's a symbolic representation of judgment. When, when the Scriptures talk about hell, which is what this is talking about, it uses things like fire and darkness. And, and I'm not doubting that those things might actually include fire and darkness, but the point isn't the, the physicality of those things. It's the misery. It's the, the just punishment that is brought. And so the, these two, the beasts and the false prophet, are thrown into this lake of fire and they suffer eternal conscious misery cut off from the goodness of God. The rest are slain by the sword of Jesus and they perish. They're not just kings and captains and mighty men, but they're all men. All men. All types of men. All types of mankind. Free and slaves, small and great. No one will escape the justice of God. No one. Remember, he has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees all. He knows all. He will deal with all. You can run, but you can't hide. You cannot hide. Jesus sees all. And again, behind this is the call to find refuge in Him and follow Him now. Not wait for this dreadful future that will be your future if you do not run to Him and live in Him and His grace. And there are, there are real people behind this story. Real people. Like you and me. Maybe some of us are in this place right now where we're not running to Jesus and we're susceptible to this. They're all around us. And you, and you have to think, well, well, how did it happen? Because we tend to look at these things and we think of the great evil people in history, right? I mean, Hitler. Yeah, Hitler will be there. We know. He'll get his. 
not just Hitler. It's other people too. It's all that have refused to run to Jesus for refuge. God will judge injustice, and it will be a just judgment. We talked about the other week how the judgment is proportional to what's deserved. It's not malicious. It's not capricious. It's not you know, sadistic. It's just. It's, it's perfectly just and right. But it includes all those on the whole scale, wherever they might be, those that have rebelled against God. But how does it happen? What does it look like? Well, I think people get there with small steps. I think it happens in lives with small steps. Decision by decision, step by step, misstep by misstep, knowing right and wrong, and just in the little steps thinking, the wrong doesn't seem all that bad. And there just seems something really right about this wrong. So I'll step this way. And then there's another step. And we know right and wrong. And maybe we've even known about Jesus from a young age. And we step away though, step by step. And that's how I think it happens for a lot of us. I think sometimes it happens that our steps aren't necessarily that bad. We don't go that far. We might be a fairly good person. And I think sometimes the people that are good are even in more danger than the people who are bad and know it. Because you're stepping away too, step by step, but they're kind of acceptable steps. And then what happens, I think, often with good people is that when the truth of God's mercy is brought to them, that, and the truth that they are sinners, just like all the rest of us, who need rescue, just like all the rest of us, they, they think, no, I'm not. I don't need that. I'm not that bad. Surely God will look at my life and the goodness of my life and, and let me in. I have a relative who lived a very moral life, a good life in many ways, but compared to God's standard, I know she had to have fallen short. And when the good news of Christ was preached to her, communicated to her, told her this good news, she said, I hope I've never done anything that would make Jesus have to die for me. And it was just so sad to hear that. She would not receive mercy. She felt she was above mercy and grace. And I think that's how some people get there. And they're going to be surprised on that final day. How did I end up here? Because you refused mercy and grace offered to you. And all you had to do was turn from your self-efforts and your self-righteousness and admit what's true. I have fallen short. Instead of putting up a facade and protecting yourself, just simply say, yeah, I've fallen short and actually it's a lot worse than I even know. And I'm going to choose mercy. I'm going to choose God's mercy instead of standing on my own. You know, actually, I've, I've done both in my own life. There was a time when I was a, a young person in my youth group and a group of people came to share their stories of how Jesus had rescued them, a bunch of young people. And they had been um, in trouble with police and in trouble with substance abuse. And they shared their story of how Jesus had rescued them and changed their lives. And I listened to their story and I said in my heart, I remember this vividly, I said, what a bunch of losers. They need Jesus, obviously. And that's, that's how I thought. And I walked out. I kept on going to youth group, by the way. And I failed to see that actually I was doing a lot of the same things as they were. Actually, I, I won't go into it, but my life looked very much like theirs. I did that. I, I thought, I don't need mercy. They need mercy, not me. I'm doing great. And yet my life was full of the same sorts of things. I fooled myself, and I was on the wrong side of Jesus. And thank God, I came to understand mercy and receive mercy. I just want to say, guys, that 
you're no different than these examples if you've not run to Jesus. What makes you think that you're any different? What makes you think that somehow you're not in this storyline if you continue with what you're doing? This is a glimpse of the future for your sake that you might not find yourself as one of those receiving judgment from Jesus instead of mercy and grace. Do not presume on the kindness of God. This past week, uh, there were four sudden deaths, past week or so, four sudden deaths in Haverhill. Some of them violent deaths, but all unexpected. And to, to top it off, uh, a dear friend of one of our children suddenly died, just out of college, full life ahead of her, died during the night. Now, thankfully, she was ready. She had run to Jesus. But she was called home unexpectedly, and that can be you. And you're given a glimpse of the future here. That you can be ready. That you can find mercy. That you can know Christ and forgiveness and life in Him. And if the bank could come up as we close. This is given to you that you might be warned that as I started out with, what, what might have been different in history if all these people had known what the future held, right? Well, these different leaders... What might have been different? It's like half the church is coming up on the stage. Uh, what might have been different had people known what the future held? Well, guys, you know the future. It's here. What can be different in your life? Everything. And I just want to encourage you, don't, if you're in that place, I don't want to pressure you in a human way, but I want you to hear it from God and respond to Him. Don't wait a moment to say, Jesus, forgive me. And help me, I'm a mess. You know, you're, you're, we're all messes. You don't get in this by having it straight. You get in it by being a mess and saying, I need you. Don't wait for that. Don't wait. Do it today and just simply say, help me. That's all. That's all you need to do. There's application for everybody here. And, and if you have fled to Jesus as well, there's application for you because, guys, we get to be part of God's rescue now. We want, we want to make a difference in the future, by getting a glimpse of the future, knowing what's coming, and being faithful and true, holding on to Jesus as He holds on to us, and loving others and telling them, and so living in how we pray and act, that we stand together, we strengthen each other, we seek to model His love, we love and pray for our city and our neighbors, we model what it's like to live in Jesus as a witness to the world of what Jesus looks like, so that we might only enjoy that blessing, but share it. I love Daniel 12. The, uh, the angel says to Daniel, about this end time. He says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And it says this, And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a privilege! We get to lead others to righteousness as we simply live humble lives of love and truth. And guys, there's a countless number, so I'm asking for thousands for this church. Thousands would come to Christ through our church. And it will be my joy, and I know your pastor's joy, to watch you guys shine like stars forever and ever. Let's pray as we transition reflect on what God would be calling us to do in light of this amazing glimpse of the future. Lord, we ask You to help us now to live in light of what is true and what will happen. I pray You'd give us power 
to understand and they would hear from you for us individually. And that we would live for that sure future that is coming. 